Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. On today's show, we have a really special guest who's going to take us through some of the steps to um, what it, the actions of, uh, of regulation and the actions of quality control are actually like within the dietary supplement industry. Um, so our guest is Elon Sudberg. He's the CEO of Alchemist Labs, which is a passionately committed contract testing lab that specializes in plant authentication, botanical ingredient identification, and quantitative analytical services for the food and beverage industries, nutraceutical and cosmeceutical industries as well. He holds a degree in chemistry from California State University, Long Beach, and has authored numerous articles on phytochemistry and analytical techniques for natural products and the nutraceutical industry. It's so great to see you, Alon. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been quite, quite an honor. Listening to your podcast and now being on it's just super fun. Thank oh, you. awesome. Love to hear that. Well, I thought it would be fun if we maybe just start with some of the basics. What can you share with us about the history of the dietary supplement industry and kind of how we got to where we are today? Hmm. So thousands of years in a, in a quick summary, uh, you know, we all took dietary supplements uh, many, many, many years ago, thousands of years ago. It's, that was medicine. That is medicine. Um, and, you know, since the history of trade, uh, people have been trying to make sure they get the right stuff. And so, you know, long ago, uh, our techniques were organoleptic, which, you know, our mm -hmm. eyes, our noses, our mouths, uh, you know, going back to the spice trade, you know, did you get pepper or not? You would smell it and taste it. And someone with a good olfactory system would be like, yeah, that's cut or no, it's not cut. So, that, you know, the beginning starts off as simply as that, um, you know, the, a lot of folks don't think the dietary supplement industry is regulated, but it is very regulated uh, by the FDA um, heavily. Uh, and there's been, you know, renditions of those rules, uh, most recently in 19, uh, or 2007, the GMPs came out, the good manufacturing practices, which reestablished the rules that already existed uh, as far as the testing required to play uh, professionally and responsibly in this industry. So, and we started the lab right around the same time, actually, I'm sorry, 10 years before that, um, mm -hmm. it had a nice 10 year float period of, of not much regulation other than, than uh, in 2007. Regulations picked up, and uh, we've been extremely busy ever since. That's um, great. Well, I think one of the points of confusion is how FDA approves drugs versus dietary supplements are not approved. You have to have proof of you know of efficacy and safety with an FDA approved right. drug, which is right. something you don't have to have for dietary supplements. But right. as you mentioned, there are other areas around manufacturing and quality control that are regulated. Maybe you can share a little bit more um, about that with us. Absolutely. Yeah. We are regulated very differently than drugs. Obviously, we, uh, the industry cannot make claims unless you have clinical studies to back those up. And that actually goes back to, you know, the, the 60s with Kennedy signing the, I believe it's the Kefauver-Harris Amendment, um, which was mm -hmm. really a fallout of the thalidomide, a FDA-approved uh, safe yeah. drug, which ended up being not so safe uh, and taken off the market very quickly. After that, they basically said, hey, you're going to have to do some, some safety studies. I'm summarizing quite a bit of language. Uh, safety studies, but what that actually did uh, to the dietary supplement industry is made us not allowed to say this does that. Um, and since that, we've just been focusing, you know, the industry has been, um, a lot of folks get in trouble for breaking those rules, obviously, um, whether yeah. they know it or not. Um, the pharmaceutical industry obviously is, has the ability to make claims that, you know, uh, drug claims and our industry does not. So we focus on, it is what you think it is. It has the quantity of com compounds that you hoped for, and then it's free of 
contaminants, you know, the heavy metals, pesticides, microbial issues. Um, yeah. So can you give us an example of a claim? When I when I think of this with regards to dietary supplements, I think of, you know, something like promotes immune health or, right. or gut health or this, this very generic thing. So that's not considered a claim. But if I were to say this is specifically you take this to treat diarrhea, right. that's a claim. Okay. Right. Correct. And I, I have a saying that I made up a while ago that uh, labs cost less than lawyers. <laughs> uh, the lawyers are there for a reason and uh, to make sure that you can get as close to making that claim. So you, you said some may, the words may, you know, the, everyone's very careful about what they can say. And there's lots of good regulatory lawyers in the industry to make sure you can get as close to it as possible. But you're correct. You cannot say will prevent or cure your diarrhea as an example. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I think journalists take that perspective as well. You see a lot of, you know, when there are exciting new articles in the scientific literature, primarily in animal studies at this point, for many of them, it says, you know, this plant may help with Alzheimer's or it may, you know, so may is a critical, right. <laughs> critical word. There's a lot still in progress. Which I think is the funny part about, you know, this, and you probably know this more than I do, but I, I forget how many percentage of our medicines or pharmaceuticals come from originally plants. Right. So it's all yeah. originating from plants and fungus and, and things from the grounds. Uh, and then at some point in time, we we single the compounds out and we brand them and then we make the claims. But they're all coming yeah. from plants mostly. Which yeah, I know they are. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I can't remember the number right now, but there's there's a pretty substantial number of, of, of pharmaceuticals that were originally discovered in or modeled after compounds found in plants. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So let's talk a bit about some of the challenges when it comes to the safe production and distribution of plants. And let's start with some of the most basic thing, and that's identification and botanical authentication. So right. at Alchemist, you guys work on this. What does that actually look like, and why is that step really important to the industry? Yeah, it's it's critical. I mean, the first step in GMP uh, compliance is identity testing. It makes no sense mm -hmm. to spend money on pesticides, microbial, or heavy metals on the wrong material. Uh, it also makes no sense to throw an ingredient through clinical studies, which do happen in our industry quite often, more frequently these days than ever, uh, if you have the wrong starting ingredient. Um, and the fact is, plants are complicated. They're promiscuous. You know, we don't have iguanas and dogs breeding to new creatures yet. <laughs> uh, maybe soon, who knows? But, you know, peppermint spearmints haven't been peppermint spearmint for years. They've been hybrids of each other forever, and these, these plants are challenging. And so the fact is, there's only a couple in our industry. We trade about 2,000 plants, as an example. There's fungus, obviously, there's many more of those. But of those 2,000, there's only a few with poisonous cousins. Uh, and I say mm -hmm. cousins, uh, you know, gently in the botanical world. Um, but we still have to make sure you have the right material starting. One, because you could have the wrong one, could make people sick. But two, because there are other lawyers on different sides that are looking to uh, get people in trouble and, you know, uh, for having the wrong uh, genus and species. So I also have a saying that, you know, you, you could probably put your um, species away and just talk about genus in a lot of cases, um, because there's a lot of plants that are, you know, that end up the echinaceas as an example, Augustifolia, Palla, purpurea. Plant parts are important, obviously, but in most cases, those plants can be interchanged or, or licorice, uh, Chinese licorice versus not Chinese licorice, Glycerisa mm -hmm. urolensis versus um, glabra. In the in the monographs, they're interchanged for thousands of years, but if you say glabra and you have urolensis on your label, you can have a lot of trouble. So. The first step in GMP compliance is identity testing. And as I mentioned earlier, we can do that with organoleptic techniques, macroscopic, looking at things with your mm -hmm. eyes or a, uh, a low-level microscope. Um, the next one would be microscopy, which is how I kind of cut my teeth in this industry, looking at plants under the microscope. 
Um, amazingly, most plants have different cellular uh, characteristics uh, from each other. And there's, you know, a lot of plants on earth and they look like each other in some cases, but the surface could be completely different with different hairs, different stomata, different orgasmic cell contents with uh, crystals and whatnot. Um, to go further, we do HPTLC, so high performance thin layer chromatography, mm -hmm. uh, which works on all plants in the raw material, but where microscopy stops is when you extract something. So a lot of folks don't realize that, like as an example, uh, Lipton iced tea is an extract uh, of tea leaves. Uh, you put it in the water and it dissolves. There's no more plant material in there. Those are chemicals from plants. From the and plants. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so microscopy is looking at cellular features. Well, there's no more cellular features at that point. So you have to do uh, chemical techniques, which is a very beautiful and nuanced um, chemical separation technique. And uh, it shows a, shows a band pattern. Uh, we don't always know exactly what each of those bands are. In some cases we do, but in most cases we actually don't. And you compare the band pattern of a known versus an unknown, you can say uh, a positive identity. That technique's going on, I think, over 100 years old, accepted globally. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and it's just, it's what we actually specialize in for, have specialized in for all these years. Of course, so it's, like a, it's like a fingerprint match, basically. Exactly. You're saying yeah. the fingerprint of this matches that one. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You mm -hmm. see, it on, you know, a CSI, the, D, the DNA of, a, of yeah. a suspect versus a, you know, whatever. It's the same exact pattern instead of proteins, they're plant chemicals. Um, those are the primary techniques we use in this industry for identity testing. Of course, there are new, um, I'll call them tricorders on the market, uh, lab in a box type things, which we're not a huge fan of, obviously, um, not a lot of validation and, uh, and they're kind of new to the scene. So we're still waiting for them to work out those kinks. But HPTLC and microscopy are the, the, and macroscopy are the, the primary identification techniques for plants and mushrooms. That's great. So do you, do your herbarium voucher specimens play a role here as a curative or an herbarium? I'm always curious to see like yeah. where those fit in within the um, industry. And I've got a slightly different take on the herbarium because we have, obviously we have an herbarium. We call it an herbarium. We have almost 20,000 specimens mm -hmm. uh, in there from the 2000 plants and fungus we test. Um, it actually started as a hoarding issue of my father's um, <laughs> he would basically test samples and he would keep them. And, you know, you have to have control samples. So we worked uh, early on with uh, the wonderful Roy Upton of the American Herbal Pharmacopeia. Mm -hmm. We did work for him. He gave us reference materials to start our herbarium. And we sort of perpetuated the herbarium from that point on. But where we get into, I wouldn't say trouble, but, you know, um, some of the academics don't like our herbarium because they're actually mostly consisting of samples from trade. So when we test an incoming sample for any customer, if it passes and they don't need it back and we want to keep it, we keep it. We use that to compare against other reference materials and we sort of perpetuate reference materials. So when we test something. So it's more like a re retention voucher then kind exactly. of you're talking about like pieces yeah. of leaves and things, not a full like flowering specimen. Now, now I we mean, we, have... we keep, we keep retention vouchers yeah. as well. In addition to our. Right. Full now the interesting yeah. thing about retention vouchers for our sake is that we do have lots of press specimens from various bodies mm -hmm. around the world and the raw material for those. But if you take, as an example, um, lavender grown in the wild, I'm not sure where you'd find that, it mm -hmm. will test out microscopically, probably similar to the lavender traded in the industry. You take lavender, wild, wild crafted lavender grown, however it felt like growing through you know, the universe, and compare that chemically to industry traded, you're gonna get very different materials because the industry perpetuates certain quality parameters, whereas natural lavender is just, it's like an alley cat versus a, uh, yeah. a and so in our case, HPTLC and vouchers don't do well because most of the vouchers we get are wildcrafted, you know, grown out in the wilderness, not perpetuated by, you know, a corporation with growing conditions and fertilizing conditions and mm. whatnot. So, um, 
so our variant is actually a mixture of press specimens, academics uh, vouchers, as well as mostly industry collected specimens for 25 years. So I've That's got amazing. lavender for 25 years from all over the world, from all the different companies uh, in, a, in a nice size room, um, ready to be tested against. That's great. Yeah, I think one of the one of the big challenges when working with botanicals is, as you mentioned, you can have very different um, a very different secondary metabolite profile right. between you know the same species grown in different conditions. We've done a lot of work with our collaborators in the Balkans, looking at even like pine resin chemistry um, yeah. from pine trees grown on one side of the mountain compared to the other, or at yeah. higher elevations or lower. And it's amazing. You you get a lot of the same compounds, but they can be there in very different levels. Um, as, and that's really because they use those compounds for their defense or to deal with different environmental um, yeah. factors. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a, uh, surprisingly, I'm not a good gardener. I just really never put enough time to, to say I garden, but I have had a few gardens. I wanted to do like a salsa garden and a tomato sauce garden. So I have things for salsa mm -hmm. and I'm notorious for taking jalapenos and making them not hot, which we can do by watering them. You know, if you if you're if you're mean to jalapenos, you don't water them, and you're just mean to them. They get spicy. They stay spicy. Uh -huh. You get them all the water they need. They're like, life's good. Why why produce protective compounds that make things spicy? And so, uh, to your example of the pine on one side of the mountain versus another, absolutely, yeah. you, water, you can water a plant differently. You can change those metabolites. That's amazing. Yeah, um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, plants are very. Um, they really engage, I think, in ways that we don't necessarily see until we look really under the hood <laughs> at their chemical profiles. So one other one other challenge in the industry has been around this issue of mistaken identity. And there's there's one particular case study I give for my students of looking at um, different species of, of star anise. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. some of the story. Yeah. This kind of came about when I was in graduate school um, where there were some uh, people are making teas of star anise. It looks yeah. macroscopically very similar to, you know, the two species look very similar, but chemically yeah. there were some pretty big differences that were, you know, bringing newborns um, into the hospital because of yeah. those side effects. So can you tell us a bit more like, so if you have a case like that where the macroscopic evaluation of, of the plant part, because again, in trade, you don't always get the full plant. How do you work around that? Is that where microscopy and kind of HPTLC comes into play? Yeah. So any botanist will tell you the best way to identify a plant is obviously in the flowering state. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in that case, I, I do recall there was, I believe there's some deaths in, in you know, an herb shop in San Francisco not that long ago. And, you know, as you mentioned, the, the difference macroscopically is I think it's five lobes versus four or something like that. So mm -hmm. macroscopic, you could tell the difference. But if you don't look carefully enough, they look pretty much the same. Right. Mm -hmm. That's if you're lucky enough to get it in the whole form, you might be able to do the difference. Now, once it's powdered, you can't tell the difference between the two. It's brown and orange and brown and orange and smells beautiful and smells beautiful. Uh, my crossbeat does a, a decent job, but we would rely on HPTLC for that. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, it's a simple, inexpensive test that you one could actually do on their own with simple kits that, you know, as you just shared, you know, it could result in saving or not, not hurting someone or not killing someone. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a great example of two uh, genuses where that is a case where there's a poisonous cousin as an example. Um, yeah. And, and accidentally yeah. traded quite often. Yeah. And we've, a lot of the work I've also, I was just in Albania and Kosovo this summer. And one of the questions that we were asking on this field expedition, working with local communities is trying to understand like what the current state of herb trade is, because in many of these very remote kind of montane areas and the Balkans provide something like 
8%, I think, of all the medicinal plant trade, which is like an absurd amount from such a small yeah. area. Yeah. Um, and these are often collected by children. Right. So when the children are out watching the sheep, you know, herding goats, they're also collecting these plants and they bring them back. And, you know, you may not be that surprised to know that right. sometimes they grab the wrong thing because yes. some of these species look very similar or, you know, within the same genus, but there can be, you know, even threatened or endemic species that get mixed in there. Yeah. They're dried at the home. And then, you know, a guy in a van comes around and buys up what you have in the bags and then it makes its way into European yeah. and U.S. markets. So, um What's the industry doing at this stage? I know it's, you know, it's just such a, it's, it's such a challenge because this is happening in tiny villages all over the globe for these wild crafted herbs. Um, what can we do to kind of help, help guide people to get the right species or have better control on the input side? It's interesting that the story you tell those the children picking the herbs, that's actually how the lab, this lab actually started. We were um, making tinctures for my father, who's a retired chiropractor, acupuncturist, had a blind mm -hmm. tinctures. I grew up basically with hydraulic presses and bitter nice. herbs in the garage. Mm -hmm. So I was pressing herbs as a youngster. Um, we started the lab for our internal quality control, but then something actually woke up the industry, which is an adulteration of Plantago. So mm. the wrong species was picked along Digitalis uh, versus uh, Plantago lanceolato. Oh, wow. Was, this is back in 1996 or so. One worked on the gut, one worked on the heart. They got mixed up and people ended up in the hospital with heart attacks. Uh, mm. And so the FDA responded by teaching a course, which we took, my father took, and then the lab actually started. So based upon very simple harvesting techniques, just grabbing maybe all the stuff rather than just the stuff. So the industry is really woken up by that that one instance. Um, and to, to combat that, we you know we've we've had some resources. The FDA put out GMPs. They've taught courses. Um, the techniques we do here at the lab are very old. They're hundreds of years old, if not. You know, many hundreds bought, you know, microscopies, hundreds, HPTLCs, mm -hmm. hundreds. Um, so the industry knows what they're supposed to do. It's just, it's almost like there's a stop sign and there's just not enough cops to patrol the stop sign. So we all know, everyone knows you're supposed to stop at a stop sign. Some of us slow down, cruise, some of us just go right through. Yeah. Um, and so the industry has, you know, there's amazing companies in this industry and then there's people who are maybe ignorant to the rules or just completely disobey them until they get caught. Um, and that's that's few and far between. I want to make that clear that the industry is not full of those those players, or at least we're not aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. But to combat those types of potential um, issues, you spend a few hundred dollars at a at a decent lab, and you can make sure that you're not going to kill that's your products. Or yeah, that your products are safe for sure. Yeah. And, and then you know, let's, you get through the they're not going to kill someone because they're safe. But then are they going to work? You know, we can't talk about work too well. But if you have certain compounds that may cause or, or have impact on health conditions, um, you want to measure those. And that's what we can do to make sure you have the better quality materials. And then, of course, then you go into pesticides and heavy metals and microbial just to make sure it's also not going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. And so when you talk about the compounds that you're looking for that may be bioactive, would those be called like your marker compounds? That you're trying? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I like to say uh, marker compounds or market compounds. Oh, market. Okay, great. <laughs> right? It depends on how strong the marketing comp, uh, um, department is in that company because, you know, um, there's compounds that are being marketed that we're not really sure if they're the magic bullet or if there's any magic bullet. I mean, pharmaceuticals take the compound single and take it out of the plant. Herbal medicine has been the one with using kind of all of them, the sort of synergistic effect of all sort. Now, now coined as the entourage effect in the, in the cannabis mm -hmm. industry, for example. It's the synergistic yeah. effect. It's been that way for all of uh, you know herbal medicine for, from the very beginning. 
So oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So people measure some or many. Sometimes they just want to know if the caffeine quantity in their in their green tea, because they're going to ultimately have a caffeine centric product. Mm -hmm. That's a really great point. Yeah, I mean, if you think about even the the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded, I think back in 2015 for the discovery of this compound from a plant called artemisinin from the wormwood plant. And right. of course, now we have widespread drug resistance to the single compound, but some interesting studies have shown that when you look at the whole plant, right. you restore activity. And I think it goes back to that entourage, that synergy of yeah. multiple chemistries at play um, in those activities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the scale of this industry. I think that sometimes it's really underestimated. Can you share anything with us about like the market size? Like how much how much is involved in, in this yeah. bio, you know dietary supplement industry? I mean, we're talking about millions in trade, oh, billions. billions. What are we talking about? And I don't have the exact numbers. It's billions. And it grew in the last few years for obvious reasons because of the pandemic. Uh, mm -hmm sort of accelerated a few years up like we're we're where we thought we would be in 2026 because people you know were regardless of what side you're on or of any side of this of the various arguments around the pandemic uh, we all wanted to take better care of our of our bodies even if you took medicines or didn't take medicines you you know immune health is important um, and it's funny that you know we've been around for long enough to see a few uh, economic downturns and various you know global crisis so you know the housing crisis uh, was it 2008? I think I forget um, exactly when it was, but the last recession, people take better care of themselves uh, when yeah. they can't afford healthcare. So they they actually took more supplements and vitamins. Surprisingly, that was still high on their list of things to buy when they were short on cash because you know they don't want to go to the doctor. So when our customers sell more herbs, we test more herbs, and we've actually grown through all of the various recessions and pandemics. But back to your question, the industry is growing fast. Um, you know, obviously for obvious reasons, the the pandemic. Put it put sort of immune health on the market, whether it's vitamin mm -hmm. D or or zinc or um, you know various countries. I think uh, Thailand was was uh, promoting uh, andrographis extra, extract mm -hmm. for treatment of COVID. I mean, they explicitly said to do that to their to their to their um, population. So herbs have been sort of put back on the market. Dietary supplements been put back on the on the map, so to speak, globally. So it's it's fast growing. Um, and then also the the big pharma industry and just big food like Nestle is buying up companies left and right. P and G is buying up companies left and right. Uh, Interesting. Uh, Hormel, uh, Reckitt Baxter, Clorox owns a probiotics company, which is kind of funny because Clorox kills <laughs> biotics <laughs> and then it kills biotics on the other side, which I just think is fun to talk about. But yeah, so the big players in the food industry who said no thanks to the dietary supplement industry maybe five ten years ago have completely pivoted and are quickly getting their foot mm. in the door, which I wonder if that's a good or bad thing. <laughs> no, I, I, I can know. speak, I can speak to, to that. Uh, you know, we have a customer new chapter who was purchased by Procter and Gamble and, and, you know, I can't speak to the culture change or just the operational changes. I imagine things changed when Procter and Gamble came in, but I, I know they've, you know, not to double down, like quadruple down on quality once they came oh, in and great. Not that there was an issue, but they're mm -hmm. just, they brought their own, you know, Procter and Gamble type of um, level of concern above and beyond, I'll, sh I'll say, to that product. So it's been nothing but testing since they they um, made that acquisition. Now, I can't say that's been the case for all large acquisitions that the original brand soul has been retained. But um, and there's a lot of people who are against the big companies buying the little companies, but it's sort of inevitable. It happens in all industries. Yeah. 
Well, and I think it's important to note too that, you know, botanicals and the trade of medicinal plants is, is relevant not only to the dietary supplement industry, the food and beverage industry, but also cosmeceuticals and yeah. personal care products. So our soaps, our deodorants, our shampoos, yeah. our face creams, you know, there's a gazillion products on the market to make you look younger or to treat your acne. And a lot of those have, have botanicals that are yeah, part of the primary formulation. I just walk through store shelves and I see all these brands that I know mm -hmm. I don't test for that brand, but I test for the company who supplies the lavender for that brand. And I, and, and I feel good nice. to know that if I look at the back label. I'm like, we, that we touched that botanical or at some point in time. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you also mentioned cannabis and I think that's one of the big elephants in the room because cannabis I'm sure is also contributing to this massive growth in the industry when it comes to edibles. Um, yeah. What's, what's happening now with, 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 product quality control with cannabis, especially for edibles. Cause I know that's been an area I've been a little bit nervous about because it's been a bit of the wild west with so many different companies coming out and different extraction yeah. methodologies being used and THC yeah. being super concentrated in some of these products. Yeah. Um, what, what, what perspectives can you offer on that? Whew, it's just, it's, um, I want to say it's a mess. I mean, we're, we're actually not involved in the recreational cannabis side of things. We, we do a little hemp testing, Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, our customers for the cannabis market are the local district attorney and agricultural commissioners who are making sure their their uh, constituents are harvesting hemp and not recreational because I think that there's different fees involved and they want to uh, make sure that one mm -hmm. is not the other. Um, we have this nasty habit of producing accurate results. And so <laughs> uh, when I tell you your lavender is 0.4 and you have to throw it away versus 0.29, and you can keep it, uh, we suddenly become very unpopular uh, in a mm. very fast moving, dynamic uh, industry. So I'm trying to say it as gently as possible, but we were doing quite a bit of hemp testing. All those customers went away because we were causing failures, which meant large scale destruction of, there's no mm. it back in that industry. The, the cannabis industry, at least in California, is very strict. If it's 0.34, it's now considered recreational, you've got to throw that away. Mm. Um, and jokingly, there's probably more THC in my beard hair than there is in hemp these days, <laughs> because that yeah. number originally was arbitrary. I mean, point that that whole original thing rests on some silly pol political numbers. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's kind of a mess. Um, also, we have a DEA registration for uh, testing all of the plants and fungus and uh, schedule one, two, three, and four, which is really great for a lab, but means uh, it's only good for federal. So. I basically can't work with any of the recreational cannabis companies because they're all federally out of compliance. Oh, okay. Yeah, because of the so, federal law. Right. Yeah. So California legal, Garden Grove legal, wherever you are statewide have their own little rules. But the, the big rock that we sit on in the United States, I, I play by those rules. So we don't touch yeah. cannabis. But I'm, I'm aware and I've been following it. You know, I was actually the original chair of the American Herbal Product Association Cannabis Committee. Great. Um, which started, you know, in this industry. And, and, and as a result, afterwards, the CBD industry came and flooded our, our, our market um, as an alternative to inflammation potentially or sleep issues. Mm -hmm. You know, it was said that it was a flash in the pan and it absolutely was the, the spike went up and the spike went down. Still, there are a lot of really great companies working with really great products. Legality, it's been tricky, you know, because the mm -hmm. federal legal, legal is um, parts of that. But um, it's it's been a mess because uh, so many different regulations from state to state and the labs are trying to comply with with one versus the other. Um, and it's just a, it's just a complicated mess. And then on top of that labs, some of the biggest labs are going under in that industry. Uh, oh, wow. They close the doors, not sold, but close the doors, which I think speaks volumes to the challenge um, 
you know, I have a really great client base. So when people ask us, what's our failure rate, it's pretty low because we have some of the best clients in the industry, but um, I also compete against cheaters. There's a few labs in our industry that shouldn't be open these days. As I oh. understand it in the cannabis mm -hmm. space, there's a lot, there's a lot of problems yeah. with labbing and just inaccurate results. So back to that original point three, throw it away or not, you know, and, you know, I don't want to mention, you talked about gummies and, you know, um, I graduated high school in 97 when that original California law was about, was coming out and it was medical cannabis. The intention was to take fire and apply it to the flower, dried flower plant and inhale it in your lungs to treat, you know, various medical ailments. I don't think they ever said, oh, and go ahead and use supercritical fluid extraction. Sticks yeah, exactly. Compounds <laughs> out, isolate it and make it 98% and kill the gummy. That was never allowed. And I'm amazed. I'm still amazed that there are vape pens. I'm not going to, I'm not saying I'm pro against, I'm just amazed that there are now legal pulmonary applications of yeah. delivery of fine chemicals, which you couldn't do that. I couldn't take Echinacea augustifolia echinecocides, throw it in some propylene glycol and a vape pen and sell that. I'd be in, you know, FTC. Oh, I know it's, it's wild. And there's so many, I have so many concerns about the vapes. You know, I, I'm a mother of, of high school students and yeah. I have one going to college soon. And I'll tell yeah. you, like they sell these vapes, um, in the high school bathrooms and in the yeah. gym. And I'm like, you know, my kids start, I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. You don't even know who made these. If they're, you know, I need to like yeah. test these by a mass spec or throw them on yeah. the GC and see what actually is in here. What is in there? It's we yeah, have, it's we don't have data on cannabinoids, you know, single cannabinoids going directly into the lungs. Mm -hmm. I mean, now we do. We've got years of like sort of yeah street data, but that was never what was intended. And I'm just yeah. amazed that EA is not stuck stepped in. I'm not saying I want them to. I'm just saying I'm just amazed watching the regulations on chamomile in my industry. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> yeah. couldn't take a chamomile product and inhale it. It's it's you know it's sublingual maybe and you know digestive tract mm -hmm. only. I can't even put a patch on my skin. Chamomile. Wow. <laughs> right. But you can extract uh, you know cannabinoids, isolate them, uh, fortify them, and throw them in a pineapple flavored propylene glycol solution to be directly into my lung. I just yeah, it's, so it's I'm, wild. It's wild. So yeah. in one way, I feel like we missed the bus of cannabis, but I'm, another way, I'm glad I'm not on that bus because I hear hear all sorts of terrible stories of how hard it is to play legitimately in that field. Yeah. Well, you know, from your perspective within the field, what are what are some of the big challenges that are arising, or other maybe exciting things that are coming about um, in the industry? You know, as the industry grows, we get more sophisticated. We get new new companies with more sophistications in there, but also marketing. Um, I think one of the areas that are that's exciting to me is that that the quality story is now finally being told. Um, as I mentioned, that Kefauver Harris Amendment that basically stopped anyone from saying this does work, unless mm -hmm. you spend tons of money in pharmaceuticals, and that's kind of where we stop. So we can't even say our products work. Um, everyone thinks they're snake oil and unregulated, uh, and so if, you know, I still have friends that that you know tell me, oh, that's not a regulated industry, is it? I'm like, I've been around for, we've been doing this for 26 years. It's clearly regulated. Um, mm -hmm. So where I'm going with this is that there's this new movement of taking quality out of the closet, so to speak. Um, nice. All the good companies have spent the money already, but they put this these reports, you know, millions of dollars of quality control testing with various labs. They put the, the products in a drawer of a mid-level quality control professional never to be used again. And the, something I've been speaking about loudly is that, no, this is marketing gold. I actually mm -hmm. consider myself a marketing guy with a chemistry degree. 
So, uh, <laughs> like so I think, you know, why not take out the quality data uh, from the very beginning? Yes, it's chamomile. Here's the identity test. Who cares if you know what HPTLC is? Share it. You spent the money. And so there's companies- Well, people can see a picture. I mean, a picture is worth a yeah. thousand words and exactly. you can you can show yeah. like this matches. You yeah, don't have to be a chemist to get that. Yeah. We've all have our degree from CSI, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. so we can know that that's the band that matches that band. So, you know, I think it's time to really shout from mountaintops, especially for the companies that are doing the work that are spending the money, because there are some companies that are not and they're cheating and we're, you know, our industry is competing against each other uh, unfairly in a lot of cases. So my whole, my whole spiel is like, take the quality out, share it from the mountaintops, make it accessible to the consumers, whether it's a QR code that brings to a report that they don't understand. It's, it's access to the backstory of quality, which is a movement happening. And, and you'll start to see that more and more. It, it might just be our last value proposition. We can't say it works. <laughs> you, you can't say much more than it is this and it's free from contaminants. And everyone has a little cool logo that says quality tested, but no one actually has anything beyond that to show yeah. what people like us do with our expensive equipments uh, to prove that it is in fact the right plant, has the right compounds in it, and it's free from contaminants. Oh my gosh. I mean, I personally, I mean, coming from a chemistry background, but I would love yeah. to have that on like even my herbal tea because you have blends of different ingredients right. as well. And how amazing would it be to be able to actually yeah. pull that up on a QR code on the box and- uh, it's, it's close. And, and, close yeah. yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, one other question I had since you've got your finger on the pulse is what's new in ingredients? I mean, do, are there some new and interesting botanicals yeah. that are gonna be coming out soon? Do you think that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah. You know, adaptogens showed up. It's, what's funny is there's nothing new in ingredients. These have been around for thousands of years. I know, yeah. There's like 34,000 species use this yeah. medicine on earth, right? So exactly. it's like new in the sense of new to the broader market. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. But, but yeah. the marketing of these ingredients, the adaptogens have been around forever, but now they've been obviously put on the on the map uh, several years back. Mm -hmm. uh, the immunity herbs are, uh, you know, are very popular. Too. Obviously, this uh, elderberries and the andrographis, things like that for respiratory health. health. But what I'm seeing is this uh, sort of mushroom boom. This the shroom boom, as they're calling it. You know, whether shroom it's boom, like reishi and yeah, yeah <laughs> medicinal mushrooms. I mean, I took uh, cordyceps, reishi, lion's mane, and my talk this morning with my other supplements. That's a new uh -huh. uh, addition to my daily regime of of supplements. A, a palm full every morning and night. Um, so the shroom boom is definitely new. They're making a, a huge uh, movement in the industry, being a, a you know combined with other. Uh, herbs and medicinals, but I'd also say the psychedelic part of that, you know, mm -hmm. from the shrooms, all mushrooms to obviously to other various plants is making um, an interesting um, ripples. Again, things that have been around for thousands of years, they're not new. They're just been popularized by, you know, maybe attitudes changing or needs changing. Like we, we're all seeking, you know, um, bliss, so to speak. And it's a very yeah. complicated world these days. Um, you know, uh, was a Prozac is a $20 billion a year industry. I mean, tells you a lot about what just the American public is seeking. And I believe strongly that there's other alternatives out there to pharmaceutical drugs uh, in plants that have been growing, you know, in your sidewalks for years. Yeah. Um, where that ends up, I'm hoping not like cannabis. Um, I'm hoping it's, I, I don't think it will be like cannabis because there's already a lot of really big established companies and universities doing a lot of really interesting research and work on these products um, professionally and legitimately responsibly. So it's not going to be, there probably won't be a ayahuasca store next to a nail salon anytime soon. Like there is a CBD store, you know, um, yeah. but, but you'll start to see that I believe in mainstream media being um, promoted as alternatives to, to pharmaceutical drugs. And then 
where I'm trying to figure out where that lives in the dietary supplement industry, because, you know, dietary supplements have not been medicine. We're over here and sort of like we supplement mm-hmm. good diet, but there's no, no question about it. The psychedelic mushrooms and plants have medicinal properties that are being going to be used for particular, you know, medical issues. So they don't exactly fit, but they, they are parallel. So I think we'll eventually as legalization changes, we might start to see some uh, interesting products of adaptogens with, you know, or maybe a micro dose of psilocybin mushroom with other types of herbs uh, and, you know, synergistically helping each other out. Yeah. Oh man, this is, it's such a fascinating topic. Um, I'm, I'm organizing this uh, joint conference at Society for Economic Botany and the Society of Ethnobiology in June here at Edinburgh in 2023. And one of our symposia topics is going to be on this, on kind of getting a better understanding of the use of, of, of entheogens and psychedelics in indigenous medicine and where that's going today with modern applications in medicine. Um, I'm really excited about what's happening with psilocybin. Yeah. and studies on phantom leg pain and end-of-life yeah. studies and right. um, also treatments for depression. I mean, I think it's really exciting, um, and I eagerly await some of those papers as they come out yeah. um, running these clinical trials. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that to be personal, that's been an important part of my life for a long mm-hmm. time, uh, some of these uh, important psychedelic plants and, and fungus. And I, I believe in them personally, uh, but I think there's a lot a lot of potential. Like, I, I didn't think about the, you know, the phantom leg pain uh, uh, potentials. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like one of my personal things, you know, as an yeah, amputee, yeah. I deal with yeah. phantom leg and it's, it's yeah. one of those weird things. Mm-hmm. It's part nervous system, part psychological, I guess, but it, it's this, it's this very weird sensation and there isn't really a good treatment for it. So yeah. it's yeah. just faster that um, there are theories that the psilocybin mushroom is what brought our consciousness out from, so to speak, the apes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here we are now, you know, I don't know if tens of thousands or a hundred thousand years later, reinvestigating how, potentially powerful these 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 products are and they grow everywhere they're sustainable uh they do their own thing you know um a lot of really interesting companies doing you know um internal growths uh you know upward versus flat and uh, yeah i'm excited about that that part of the industry that's cool well i have another plant i want to ask you about um and this is a species that's been been used by some people to help them deal with addiction, and that is kratom or mitragyna speciosa. It's from Asia. Um, is that is that kind of entering the dietary supplement market, or is, I, I don't know what the regulation looks like right now for that. I, I can a, find it in my local herb shop. So yeah, I'm like, or, yeah. or gas stations, and you know, next to the mm-hmm. erectile difficulty stuff. It's it's unfortunately yeah. got a bad rap, but it, it does have a huge amount of potential, and we we test that quite a bit. Um, for the mitragynine and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's still legal most places, but I think, um, I recall asking a question at the trade association, you know, can we test it to make sure that you have the best quality, almost illegal product? And the answer is obviously yes. Um, But that's definitely one that's in the dietary supplement industry. It's it's on the fringe, unfortunately, because, you know, Mm -hmm. anything that works gets abused, you know? Yeah, yeah. work are either regulated or illegal. You know, and and I think the government's still trying to figure out where kratom should be. Is it should be illegal? Should be regulated like a drug? Um, but there's you know pallets and pallets and pallets being brought into the United States, uh, and we're testing yeah. quite a bit. Well, and there are different chemotypes. I know for sure. Like there have been papers that have shown, like there when I say you know for the audience, the chemotypers the same species, but there are some very vari- variations of which like produce less of the active compounds. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. And like you said, for, back to the pine, like where it grows shade grown versus not shade grown. Um, mm -hmm. If I had uh, not started the lab right out of college, I would have gone into sort of like second secondary metabolite um, analysis. So like what tweaks can you do to ampli amplify per certain uh, compounds? So, you know, back to the original uh, method or the, the chat you had about the, the pine, where it grows makes a difference, how it grows makes a difference. And, and you can sort of amplify these these uh, plants to produce more and more. Yeah. yeah. Well, as a consumer, what advice do you have for us? Like if I'm in the store, there's so many options. There's so many yeah. different labels. Like what are the things that we should be looking for? I'm looking, I would say transparency. I think it's, it, you know, there's, there is nothing to hide. There's no reason not to share your data. Now I'm saying this, but very few brands are actually there yet in the dietary supplement industry. Um, a lot of them have a page about their quality. Uh, some have more, some have less, you know, as an example, Gaia Herbs, a wonderful company who is such a great company, they don't test with us because they have such great internal uh, facilities. Um, and it's not me, I'm not getting paid by Gaia, but they have their Meet Your Herbs program. Uh, mm. Basically, you type in a lot number and you can see all the quality control data that they've produced internally. They've awesome. been doing that for a long time, as I understand it. They have very few click rates on the actual thing, but it's the access to that data. So I think seeking out brands that are transparent uh, as far as where they're getting the materials from, how the people are treated, uh, are these sustainable practices? You know, are the do they consider concern themselves with environmentality? Those are all really important features. But I think also the quality control transparency is is a is a um, value proposition that I would suggest looking for. I always tell people that the lowest price product is probably not that great, nor is the highest price product not that great. It's usually uh. it's on both sides that someone's cheating someone on both sides. Um, and you know, look look for lab data if it's available. Look at it. Look at the lot number. Uh, I'd even say request it. Uh, again, they they all have to do these tests. <laughs> they all have these tests. It's in the drawer. Take it okay. out. Share it. So I tell folks, you know, people always ask me what to buy, and I'm you know careful not to look like I'm endorsed by anyone because I'm not. But I'm endorsed by quality, and if a brand is sharing their quality, I, I endorse them. That's great advice. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, um, Elon, for being on the show. It's great to speak with you. Likewise, my pleasure. And uh, if you're ever in the Orange County area, come on by for a lab tour. Oh, absolutely. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded today for you on Restream. I want to send a thank out, thanks shout out to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in every week. We've got lots of great episodes coming out to you this season. We're in season four of Foodie Pharmacology. So be sure to click that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time. <laughs>